1: Hello, all theater lovers, both out and proud, and on the DL, and welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This is the first of many series devoted to specific artists that have helped shape Broadway as we know it today, both for better and for worse. It is called A Little Sondheim Music. And it is dedicated to the musicals of one Mr. Stephen Sondheim. I'm your host, Matt Koplik, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me today is a lover of theater, a historian of theater. You best know him from his online trivia show that he hosts with his husband, M.T. Trivia. Please welcome Mr. Kevin Metzger-Timson.
0: Hello! Hello! How Thanks was your intro? me. It was fantastic. I love that I'm now known for the trivia show. <laughs> you
1: are. You're very known for the trivia. You know, it's we do very, what we can. Listen, it's better to be known for something than not known at all. You know what I mean? I know. Well, I'll talk
0: about like a, a product of the pandemic, MT Trivia. Truly.
1: Well, we But you're also teaching the children. That's what I like about it. Because your question, first of all, I've only watched a couple because... Uh, this podcast has kept me very busy and I don't have time to like watch the trivia as often as I would like, but you've had a couple of people I know on. So I will always watch. And I really like that you don't go soft on the questions. You make them difficult and you make the guests kind of go like, oh shit, I guess I don't know anything. And I love that.
0: Well, yeah, because we always have three contestants. So we have the two guests that are Mm -hmm. with us and then the audience is a third contestant. And there are some, very knowledgeable people in the audience. Oh yeah. So that's why we tell the guests when they're like, I don't know anything about trivia, but this will be fun. We're like, don't worry, the audience will inevitably inevitably know. So mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, to be fair, my husband Chris comes up with the actual trivia questions. So he spends days researching and I just kind of swoop in and I'm like, who do I want to hear belt today? And spend some time on YouTube coming up with like the name that Diva round and mm-hmm. and so, you know. I use my resources to my advantage.
1: You had one that was Christine Ebersol, and I was going crazy because whoever your guest was, it took them a solid minute, and I was shouting in my living room, like, it's the one of the most iconic mixes of all time, like her and Liz Calloway are, like, the yes. ultimates. I yes. was like, how can you not recognize? I was angry. I was angry.
0: I know. We featured Miss Ebersol a few times on the show. That... I mean- that pingy mix is just
1: delicious. Oh, so delish. Around the world, I only advise for you. Like, get out of my living room, Christine Ebersole. I know. She uh, can do no
0: wrong. When, when are we getting Christine Ebersole's MAME? That's what
1: I want to know. Right. She did do MAME at one point. Oh, she did it. Did she do it at the... She did it at... Paper Mill. Did she? And okay, Kelly then we've Bishop... had it. Kelly Bishop was her Vera. Oh, fierce. I know. I just
0: know the uh, the Kennedy Center with Christine
1: Baranski. And... Right. Um, Who was her Vera for that? Oh, Harriet Harris. It's a weird pairing. But fun. Oh, I would love to see it, but <laughs> it's, it's definitely sort of like not a fever dream, but it's definitely like a two o'clock um, cocaine infused casting of like, you know what I want to see? I see Christine Baranski and Harriet Harris. And just for shits and giggles, Emily Skinner's is going to
0: be our Agnes that's right emily skinner was well of course that production was famously cast by my boss miss tara rubin Ooh. oh she's she's yes. employed by tara rubin in case everyone wanted to know yeah so i see that poster in our office uh but yeah that emily Skinner skinner's agnes gooch i think is inspired casting i mean she's For a wonderful
1: sure. performer so i would love to see anything she does kevin yes.
0: what Sondheim musical are we discussing today we are discussing the OG Sondheim musical,
1: mm. uh, Saturday Night. Saturday yes. Night. Yes, it is the first Sondheim score. It was supposed to be his Broadway debut, but things happened. We'll get into it. Yes. Uh, yeah, because of the way that this podcast is going, uh, the chronological order is... Uh, shows how they premiered when they premiered in new york with a priority on broadway so this is coming after passion even though it was written about 40 years prior
0: well i think that makes sense because the world didn't know or see it until 2000 or
1: yeah we only really knew two songs from it at this point we knew so many people and what more do i need I mean Which, the two best, but yeah. Yeah, it'd be really best <laughs> foot forward. I so what is your history with this show? Did you know anything about it going in besides those two songs? Uh yes, I did
0: because I I first learned about Saturday Night in College. Mm-hmm. Um when I was so I was the kid in college that was always like I have to sing the songs that nobody's singing. I want the obscure. I want the cut songs. I want, and so I remember uh, in in looking for my senior showcase material of which I spent hours, you know, mm. scouring the internet. That's, I think, when Saturday Night first came about because I also was, went back when I was an actor, was very um. I fit in the world of 1920s musicals. That's kind of where I lived, mm-hmm. and so I was like, "Well, this is perfect. It's young people. It's set in the 20s, and uh, and you know, it's these songs that nobody's singing." So that's when I first kind of learned about it, and then it's always been around. I mean, the this you know the songs that like we said, so many people in "What More Do I Need," and even um, I learned about "Isn't It" because. Uh, someone who was in the class above me did it for their senior showcase. Mm. So I kind of knew the score and um, I even put so many people in my wedding. Um, Uh Yeah. I mean, we cut the whole beginning part about like, I have to settle for you and I wanted somebody richer. Like we just started at the, Mm. you know, the verse proper, but so that's kind of how, when I first learned about it but I didn't know until, you know, you reached out I didn't really know the plot beat by beat. So this was fun to read it and learn it.
1: Yeah, I didn't really know the plot all that well myself. I had heard the score all the way through maybe a total of three times before we boned up for this episode. And so I, I, the last two days have been like, fi- like filling my eardrums with Saturday night and reading the script and all this other stuff and reading about it and finishing the hat and the time bio and all that good stuff. Yes. Yeah, my weirdly the first song from Saturday night I ever heard it's not the song, but who sang it? I heard "What More Do I Need" the first time uh, from the Sondheim birthday concert at the Hollywood Bowl, sung oh. by Anne Hathaway.
0: Yes, I've seen this clip.
1: Yes, it's right. Yeah. It's going from that right into "Opening Doors," and she does great. She cracks a little bit, but other than that, it's a really beautiful rendition. Um, yeah, I mean, we I mean we forget that Anne Hathaway has that
0: musical theater like
1: background so we I mean, forget all yeah. the time uh which is a shame because she's one of the few hollywood actors like a-list actors who actually can like sing sing you know yes not like the hollywood sing like she actually could like do eight shows a week in a musical if she wanted to
0: oh absolutely i mean had she had hollywood not snatched her up she would i think she would be like a set and foster
1: Oh, 100%. Of
0: Broadway. Like, you know, the, yeah, the skills are, are rusty at times now, but she still has the chops.
1: Like, Yeah, she just, you know, she d- hasn't been doing it as often as she used to. Right. But yeah, like give that girl six months to like warm up the instrument again and she'll be good to go. It's yeah, it's there. That
0: clip of her singing um from Carnival when she did it at encores. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not an easy sing and she's killing it. Like, she is
1: at 18 nonetheless.
0: Yes. I think um, she is a graduate of Cap 21, where I went to
1: college. She's a graduate of Vassar. Ah. and
0: Kristen Bell is Cap 21.
1: Yes, she is. is, Another. I'm really, uh, I'm not angry. I'm proud at how much I know about Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway was very important to me for a while when I was a kid. And on top of that, my cousin was really good friends with her. They went to high school together and then both went to Vassar together. Um, And my cousin, who, Scott, shout out, by the way, he he listens sometimes. Hey, Scott. Hey, Scott. Uh, Scott is like, he does like theater, but he is essentially very different for me. He's very straight. He's very like, <laughs> he loves yes. sports. He's very, he's he, um, he loves to say man and guy and dude and stuff like that, yeah, yeah. which it's just so fun. Anyway, um for my twelfth birthday, I think. Yeah, maybe twelfth birthday, because it was um, he was graduating college and she was the year below him. So like it was his last day at Vassar. And he got a poster of Princess Diaries and got her to sign it with the happy oh birthday to me. So I have that poster in a storage facility about 10 blocks from where I live. And it's no one's ever touching it. It's my most prized possession. Yeah, of course.
0: It should be framed on your wall behind double planed
1: glass. It's, that's the next step. I keep <laughs> I keep um, uh, putting it off because I'm too afraid of like having it out in public in the open air to like get it to the framers. <laughs> but that's fair. But that's just me being crazy, but I do love her. And I actually have the full video of her in Carnival and she's lovely. And that's like one of the hardest roles for a woman in theater, not just vocally, but like acting wise. Yeah. But enough about Anne Hathaway, although I could talk about her forever. Clearly I'm stalling because I don't believe that talking about Saturday night is going to fill up a full episode. So I'm just padding. I am padding.
0: I told you I have opinions. I did my research. I have personal connections. We are. I'm ready to dive
1: in. Okay, we're ready to dive in. Okay, so you know what? Then, (laughs) then fuck my drag. Um, let's just (laughs) let's just dive in. I mean, unless Uh, you want to just talk dream
0: casting of Mama Rose for the next hour, which I mean, we've already it it really just ends (laughs)
1: with Tony Collette. I just want to see Tony Collette do it at some point.
0: I did think that was an a very inspired uh choice that you discussed on your Gypsy episode. I was Oh, thank I you. I was surprised and delighted by that and it's so obvious I'm ashamed I didn't think of it myself.
1: Well, it requires getting her back to Broadway in a musical which apparently requires some pulling. But Maybe one day. One day. Uh, I also forget what I say on some of the episodes, so if I repeat myself, please say, "Um, you said that four episodes ago." I love it,
0: and also yeah. you're gonna learn very quickly, like the end Hathaway going to Cap Twenty One. I say things as fact, and it's like that's actually not true. So when I say facts that aren't true, you can you can check me.
1: Oh, don't you? Do it you all were- the
0: time on MC Trivia. I'm like, yeah, they played this role, and in the comments, they're like, they actually did it. I'm like, oh, okay.
1: They actually weren't even alive when the role was written. Okay. How dare you? I don't, I don't know where and,
0: I got that from.
1: <laughs> in fact, they've they've been on record as to say that they will never play this role. So um,
0: actually,
1: <laughs> don't you worry. I will Keep tell you when you're wrong. <laughs> I love to do that. Yes. So Saturday Night is based off of a play by the Epstein brothers, Jules and Philip, uh, that was called Front, in, uh, Front Porch and Flatbush. And it was apparently like semi-biographical, unclear. Um, yeah.
0: That, I heard that too. Yeah,
1: that, yeah. But you know, who's, who's to say they're now both dead. And at the time that Saturday night was being written, one of them was already dead. So like no one can confirm how much is true and how much wasn't It's There's a lot of stuff in this musical where I'm like, I don't think that actually happened. Although <laughs> the boring stuff I totally can believe.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, yeah. I totally believe that you played piano on a Saturday night and I totally believe that you, you know, uh, went to the plaza and couldn't get in. I think those are things that probably happened.
0: Yeah, it's like a romantic kind of, you know, daydream of what life would have been like for the brothers in Brooklyn.
1: Exactly. Basically, it's like the first the first third of the show is like realistic, boring stuff. And then they try to like heighten the hijinks, but it kind of comes out of left field, at least just based off of what I've read. Maybe it plays better on stage, but I was there were some things in act two where I was like, oh boy, that's a turn.
0: Yeah, well, I think before we even get into the nitty-gritty, you and I can both agree that with Saturday Night, the score it, it not only elevates the piece, but the score is significantly better than the book, I I think.
1: You know, of the, I of think... the book that I've read, because not a lot of it is available um, freely anyway, I should say. I don't know if you were able to read the whole script. I may have gotten my hands on the licensed version. <laughs> oh, well then, she's very connected. I am not. I had to, uh, do a couple of things that I'm not proud of to just get my hands on a couple of scenes, but, uh, not the whole script. I, yeah, basically I don't, we'll get into it. I'll just say, I don't love this score. I like some things about it, but I just also kind of hate the book. So yes, the score is better. <laughs> <laughs> That's better just in the sense of, I just plain don't like the book. Um, Yes. So the way that this came about, and I talked about it at the West Side Story episode, but you know what? Screw you guys. I'm going to talk about it again. At this point, it's going to be like two and a half months since West Side Story. So, um, Sondheim has graduated Williams College and he spends a year as a TV writer uh, just to pay the bills, which is like, shouldn't we all be so lucky? Is like, ugh, I'd do a year of a day job as a TV writer. Ugh, so Cry me hard. a river. Right. Gay. Um. So... He meets a producer, Lemuel Ayers, who was also a very famous theatrical designer. He did the original Kiss Me, Kate. They meet at a wedding and they're both ushers at the wedding. And as they're there, Ayers is like, oh, I'm trying to produce this musical version of a play by the Epstein brothers, who um, at that point were best known for writing the screenplay for Casablanca. And he's like, I can't get someone to write the score. I asked Frank Lesser. He said no. Sondheim's like, oh, well, I write songs i'm trying to become a songwriter and airs like send me some of your things so he sends him a couple of songs he wrote while he was at williams and there's like you're hired and they start writing the show and i guess like they like wrote the full show i suppose and they're trying to raise the money and they got about half of the budget raised and then it was announced in the new york times it was going to come out in the 1954 55 season and then in august airs dies and his widow gets the rights and she at first was like oh yeah we'll totally put the show on like don't you worry I want to keep this going and it becomes very clear to Sondheim and I believe it's um uh Jules Jules Epstein that's the one who's still alive at this point it becomes very clear to them very early on that this woman has no idea how to be a producer or how to raise money and within like a month after Ayres's death they're like this thing is dead so they move on and the good news is that the score for Saturday night is what got Sondheim the job for West Side Story. He was auditioning for Lawrence, Bernstein, and Robbins for a musical they were writing. Um, I already forgot the name of it, but it was not West Side. It was something else. Uh, Ooh, I don't know. God, I'm going to look it up. But it, while I look it up, I'm going to keep going with the story. Uh, and then, you know, the musical doesn't end up happening. And then Sondheim runs into Arthur Lawrence at uh, a party and he's talking about the West Side Story Project. And Sondheim goes, oh, well, who's writing the lyrics? And Lawrence goes, oh, my God, I didn't even think of you. I remember your score from Saturday night. Your music yeah. sucks, but your lyrics are great. Uh, <laughs> poor Steve. <And> poor Steve. <laughs> to be fair, this is not some of Sondheim's best music, but it's still very pleasant. Like, I wouldn't call this music that sucks.
0: Listen, it's not bad music. It's, no. Like, I. there are m- composers since then that have, written inferior scores that have made it to Broadway and won awards. Like it's when you compare it to the grand scheme of, you know, Sweeney Todd and Into the Woods, like yeah, it's 23 year old Stephen Sondheim. But but especially if you look at it in context of the 1954, 1955 season, like
1: the score is
0: has high points. And also it has, has yes, it yeah. has
1: high points. And we'll get we'll actually get to that season um in a bit god why can't i still find it now it's pissing me off god, it's the musical it was like based off of a book that ends up becoming a movie and it's not like an opera singer who loses his voice after he has his first gay experience and then goes to mexico where he has sex with a pro- female prostitute and gets his voice back and then the yes. female prostitute kills the man he had the gay sex with and i'm like you know your classic fairy tale yeah classic. um <laughs> no yeah standard I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep looking. I really want to know what it is. anyway, I think you
0: talked about this in the West Side episode
1: I did I did and it's pissing me off because I want to say the name again and I just I simply can't remember
0: while you're looking. I think that well <sighs> what's interesting about the like whole producer dying and everything yes is there's a very fun anecdote that I read of from um when the show was happening. In one of its New York versions, um, there was an article that was published. Uh, oh, maybe this was. Why is this in the DC theater scene? But basically, this this man Richard Seff, who was around in this era. Um, I, I I actually
1: have met Richard Seff a couple of times. He has oh, yes, a, he has a really good memoir called Supporting Player because he's like the he's the epitome of someone who was like someone in a tree. He was an agent at one time. He was an actor at one time and was like never famous, but knew everybody and saw everything. So his memoir is literally like all the things I've seen.
0: Yeah, he's like a jack of all trades. And so he was he went and saw the show when it was done at the York back in 2014, I think. Mm -hmm. And and as he he tells the story about as he was leaving the theater, they get in the elevator because, you know, the York is underground and you have to go up and Mm -hmm. he's in the elevator with with Steve and he turns to me, he said, Steve, I'm Dick Seth. Um, and the last time I heard the score was at Lem Ayres' apartment at a backers audition. And you know, it's so great to hear it again. And without missing a beat, Steve, who doesn't even look him in the eye, just says, oh yes, I remember Dick Seth, but that wasn't Lem Ayres' apartment. It belonged to a wealthy couple who were the inspiration for John Robert Bates's play, Six Degrees of Separation. And then the doors opened and Steve got out and Dick Seth was just standing there like, wow. You remember?
1: Yeah. I remember that, not Dakota. Yes, I I remember that. Uh Serenade, by the way, is the name of the musical that uh, they were gonna do. The gay, you...
0: the gay Mexico musical.
1: The gay the gay Mexico. <laughs> Yes, better known as the Gay Mexico Almost Musical. Almost Musical. Yes. Aren't you so glad that I spent so much time figuring that out since it has nothing really to do with this show?
0: Yeah, but you got to put that now on a post-it note and stick it on your computer. So all the times in the future when you want to reference Serenade, you have it at your disposal.
1: I have it at my disposal. I want someone to actually turn that into a musical. I just want to see a musical about an opera singer who has gay sex for the first time and loses his voice. Yeah, that's, um, that's quite a plot point. It is quite a plot point. Um, similar in some ways, one might say, to Saturday Night. Um, so yeah, Saturday Night gets shelved. It comes back in play uh, in 1960 after Gypsy, because Julie Stein decides he wants to produce it, and they're gonna have Bob Fosse direct and choreograph and star in it. Which yes. is like, what would that have been like? Yeah. Um, yeah. It was Fosse had a period where he was really trying to make it as an actor and like was choreographing so he could get his name out there. And I'm like, what was that? career trajectory gonna look like in your head Fosse like yeah very strange starring the man who did the dances of pajama game like (laughs) (laughs) thank god he stuck with the directing and choreography though absolutely not a bad performer but yes like history likes what he's given us anyway but Sondheim basically uh done like they're in the middle of casting the thing in 1960 and Sondheim basically puts an end to it he's like you know, I've moved on from this. I don't think the show is very good. I I think I've improved since this, so I'd I'd rather you know we just move on. So they do, and basically, from what I understand, the only time people have ever heard Saturday Night started with the Sondheim musical tribute in 1973, and then again there was a concert in the early 80s at um, not the Guggenheim, the uh, it's a uh, the Whitney Whitney Museum. Uh-huh. Uh, it's called the Stephen Sondheim Evening. It has Liz Calloway, Bob Gunton, uh, Victoria Mallory. Uh, oh, and, yes. they, and Liz Calloway sings, what more do I need? And the story that Liz Calloway says, I don't know if it's true, but she said she was the first person to publicly sing, what more do I need, at least like on record. Um,
0: I would believe that. I mean, when you think back, like she's iconic with the song
1: she she absolutely is i just can't remember if it was ever sung at the musical tribute because i don't remember everything that was done in that tribute but i feel like something from saturday night was in there anyway she sang it and vicky sang um isn't it and she said at the like that night of the concert before when sondheim heard that like two of his songs from saturday night were being performed she was like oh god you know I, i'm gonna put my face in my hands the entire time i won't listen to it And unless callaway does what more do i need and it kills and afterwards, sometimes walking around the party, going, "Yeah, I wrote that. That's me. <laughs> One of my first songs. Yeah, it's all me." You uh, should be proud. You should be. It's a. I think yeah. it's a really. I think it's a really cute song, um, and has a lot of attitude towards it. And sopranos in all of our colleges since then have been singing it for years.
0: Yeah, and I mean, and some very iconic, you know, Broadway performers like Liz Calloway, Kelly O'Hara has her amazing version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a video online of Christiane Knoll singing it. I mean, it's like. Yeah, you it's know. a good song. To me, it's one of, for me, What More Do I Need is is one of those songs that sounds like New York City. It's up there for me with like um, Autumn in New York, you know, We'll Have Manhattan, mm-hmm. um, New York State of Mind, those kind of like New York songs that when you hear just kind of take you back to the city and take you back, not to quote anything goes, but take me back to Manhattan, you know? Mm-hmm. like, And I think that that is... Um, it's so kind of taps into the attitude of living in in New York and what it's like. I think everyone, when they're in college and they're like dreaming of getting to New York, this idea of the city so can be so dreary and gray, but also so wonderful at the same mm. time is you know inspiring. So
1: yeah, I had I had Brittany Coleman on to talk about company, and she talked about how not getting married today to her feels almost like in its own weird way, a love letter to New York, but like the New York that's not picturesque, you know, the Hudson floating with garbage and all that stuff. And I think this song is like really that, which is this love letter to a city, but like to all the things about it that are kind of gross. Um, yeah. yeah, like it's not, you know, oh, the Empire State Building isn't a majestic, oh, in oh, Central Park in the fall. It's um, or like that woman in 30 Rock, there's nothing like New York in the spring. Uh, it's nothing like that. It's it's like oh god look at the hobo on the corner uh look at the people packed on the subway oh uh, look at the you know dirty snow isn't it beautiful a wall
0: of rain as
1: it turns to sleep a lack of sun on a one-way street i love the grime all the time and what more do My window pane has a lovely view. An inch of sky and a fly or two. Why I can't see half a tree. And what more do I need? The dust is thick and it's calling. He talks about how when he was writing this score, he was really sort of trying to mimic the writers at the time. And you can hear pieces of him come through. But I think part of the reason why the show's not super successful, and why he's not really proud of it. He talks about the show as like his baby pictures. Like this is you know how, where I grew up with. Yes, or where that's not a sentence where I grew up with, but you know what? We know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, I talked about it before, and I think the only really musical where sometimes able to write like a fully non-judgmental like love song is in Sweeney Todd, and the only way he can get into it is by making Joanna and Anthony just, like, so simplistic that they're almost kind of a joke. But, like, the song Joanna is so beautiful and so heartfelt, but in the context of the show, you're like, this sweet kind of dumb dumb who's singing this beautiful song. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, he still is ma- able to layer in some darkness, this idea of I'll steal you. Yeah. You know? No. But, but, but uh, yeah, I agree that that is... Sondheim at his most lusciously romantic. Yes.
1: He never really writes the way he wrote for West Side Story ever again. And that is, I think there's a lot of merit to that, but it's, there are times when I wish that he would maybe go back sometimes to that uh wholehearted, non judgmental, like romantic attitude. It's uh as we were recording this episode, the Do I Hear a Waltz episode just came out, and Adam Ellsbury and I talked about how, like, he needed that attitude to write that show because he's too removed and kind of um, condescending to the material and to the characters. So like none of the love songs and do I hear a waltz make any sort of impact. Cause he's like, Oh, you know, this kind of romance and it's, you can, you can hear it. He's like kind of rolling his eyes half the time.
0: Yeah. I actually think Sondheim's true love songs are about things other than romantic relationships between two people. I think where you really get a sense of like unabashed, um, love of something comes in some of, you know, his writing of friendships or his writing of children, like in into the woods or, you know, like even in Merrily, um, um, what, you know, the, um, the song they sing at the party, the, uh, Good thing going. Good thing going. Like I was that, about to say
1: Rich and Happy. That's my favorite love song.
0: <laughs> rich and Happy. Cut. Um <laughs> But you know what I mean? Like Good Thing Going, like there's a simplistic just love. It's it feels like a love letter at times to me.
1: Yeah, it's even songs like Old Friend in Merrily or like Good Thing Going, there has to be there either has to be something kind of going against the grain with it or there, or it has to be in context of something else that like itself is not super lushly romantic so like good thing going is played it like it's a performative song at a party right. and then like um you know old friend still has to have that like argumentative section and it doesn't really end in this like really lushly romantic way the only song in merrily that i would argue is like super um uh what's the one looking for um open-minded I guess or like uh pure is our time but even that in context of the show like while it is this beautiful and simple uh song because of where it comes in the show and what we've seen lead up to it it also has a melancholy about it that like on its own if you were to pluck our time out of the show you'd be like wow Sondheim wrote this really beautiful optimistic song but in context of merrily it's like oh it's beautiful and optimistic and it makes me sad knowing how miserable these guys are going to be in 15 years
0: Absolutely. And I think that's why Sondheim out of context so often doesn't work as well as then when you learn the song in the context of the show. Yeah. Like, I mean, concerts aside, obviously, things like when you have the Sondheim birthday celebrations, you know, that is we all are entering that with the knowledge of the material.
1: Exactly. We all go in like kind of all silently agreeing like these songs work better in the show, but we're just thrilled to see like this sung by Victoria Clark with a 50 piece orchestra.
0: Right. But like a 12 year old out there, like voice recital singing, you know, nothing's going to harm, not while I'm around. Like yeah. is a very different song than when you are, in act two of Sweeney Todd, like 100%. put on a happy face, put on a happy face is put on a happy face no matter whose things are it where it's done, right. or whether you're watching by Bye Birdie or not. You know, like, so I think that's what makes Sondheim so smart is that he's so, and I, you talked about this in one of your episodes, um, but like, Kevin's a fan, everybody. I'm a fan. I've been listening. Tossing but you my hair. talked about this idea of like, he doesn't, this idea of like, in this era, especially, like, there had to be the radio hit mm-hmm. and Sondheim, you know, fights against that and is like every song has to work within the context of the show and the script. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, what's the point of writing it? You know, Absolutely. he doesn't like to write songs. Just It's actually interesting in, in Saturday Night, there are a couple songs that are kind of standalones that yeah progress the plot.
1: Yeah, there are definitely songs in Saturday Night where you can tell when they were writing it, there was this attitude of we need the song that like Sinatra is going to cover.
0: An aeroplane was across the bay, but I can hear you as clear as...
1: Point is is that yes, after 1960, it's gone. And and the song we have those two songs that sort of pop up, uh, and that's really all we ever hear of Saturday night. There's a moment where sometimes asked at a QA, I think. It might have been a Q&A for a sweeney todd at the national in london in like 93 94 where someone's like is saturday night ever gonna get done and he basically was like absolutely not that'll never happen because i think by that point he was just too embarrassed and he was still kind of in the thick of i want to write more i don't i want i don't want this to like impede my career and have people sort of think less of me and then what ends up happening is uh a british company Convinces him to let them put it on in like ninety seven, ninety eight things like at Edinburgh or something like that. They're like, "This isn't going to go anywhere. This is just like so we can so people can see it. It's not going to have any kind of major life. Can we just do it?" And he's like, "Yeah, sure, it's fine." And they do it, and he sees it. He's like, "Oh, this was like a little better than I remembered." And then it gets done in Chicago by the Pegasus Players at yes. Truman College, directed by Gary Griffin, which is fun. Yeah, Ooh, who, was, uh, directed- a
0: young Gary Griffin. Was he? I guess it was na- it was
1: 98 I think 98 99. All right, at the beginning. So yeah, yeah, be- towards the beginning. Towards the beginning of his career uh, and then I guess that was enough to sort of draw interest to it for New York where it gets produced at Second Stage in the uh winter of 2000 early of two- the year 2000. And yes. what's interesting about this, so it's the it finally it's when Saturday night premieres in New York City. And it was coming the same year as the Carol Burnett version of putting it together, which was opening that November. And there was, um, I don't know if it was a rumor, if it was like kind of unofficially announced, Wise Guys was gonna open on Broadway that April, directed by Sam Mendes, oh. a- after the workshop that they were gonna do that December. And it was gonna be like the season of Sondheim and everyone yeah. was really excited. And then, And then putting it together opened and was like not super well received and shocking shocking listen i love that putting it together understanding that it's not great but it's so fun though it is a fun come on Absolutely. carol burnett
0: ruthie henshaw john barrowman
1: oh, Pinchot. no the, and george Hearn. the whole the cast is amazing i also really love the set i love how things just like pop out of the stage yes. bob crowley is a great designer um it's just it's one of those things where like half of it works so well and then the other half is just a little too forced and like and like Sondheim as we talked about with the concert like it just out of context a lot of the songs don't work however one of my favorite bits is them doing it's hot up here at the beginning of act two and Ruthie Henschel's in like a tiny Alice in Wonderland room and there's a one foot tall chair she goes this chair is completely out of proportion it's just so fun she's great I love her yeah
0: there is yeah I mean and there's some brilliant array I mean I am a sucker for new arrangements and medleys and you know like I I die over the Sondheim on Sondheim recording and like when I saw that Mm -hmm. like that um something's coming quartet version like I die for stuff so putting it together to me is like my guilty pleasure as far Mm -hmm. as like you know the new arrangements. And- I don't
1: think anything from Saturday Night is in putting it together, interestingly enough. I don't think so either. Yeah, maybe maybe so many people. Maybe, but that's that would be the only one um... that I can think of. A uh, lot of Dick Tracy, though. Anywho, so putting it together yeah. is not super well-received. Wise Guys bombs in its workshop and gets scraped for Broadway. And then Saturday Night opens, and it's kind of... We'll get into a bit more of this with Alexi, but it's sort of tepidly received... Everyone's sort of like, it's really nice to finally see it. But that's sort of it. And there was still sort of pressure for it to transfer because the 2000 Tonys was looking kind of grim for new musicals. And they were like, if this transfers, Sondheim will win score. Like, it's in the bag. And uh, what
0: was that season? Was that Wild Party year?
1: That was the Wild Party year. And uh, Aida and Swing. That was the big yeah. things that year were. Contact was Best Musical and the Big oh, Right, like, that was the year hit. Contact one. Yeah, Shockingly. which if I were to vote, I would vote for Wild Party, but if I were being a sort of stodgy, I don't like you know musicals that have uh, sexual assault in them, I would go with Contact, Over the Dead and Over Swing.
0: I also think that if Lacuse's Wild Party hadn't made it to Broadway first and Lipa's had, I actually think Lipa's Wild Party would have won a lot of awards too. I think it was we it's don't it was need to more get into the wild party of it all. That's a whole other episode. We, we, but we, Yeah, we can't. Yes, it's more palatable. It's more commercial.
1: Yes. Whether it would have won a lot is I think that, I mean, truly we'll never know. Yeah. Uh, but it was yeah. It's interesting because if you look at that Tony Awards, it's so clear that the nominating committee nominated for Aida as little as possible, knowing that if um, it got that if it got musical, it would win musical. And the Tonys were like, we're kind of done with Disney right now. We really don't want to give them more than we can. And it shows because of think of like the five Tonys it's nominated for, maybe the four. It wins like seventy five percent of its Tony nomination. They win actress, yeah. score, uh lighting and, and scenery so i guess four out of five so they were like yeah if, if the tony committee if the tony voters had their way they were like yeah we would have voted for aida that yeah. would that, like that's the musical but people were like please saturday night transfer it's the newest sonday musical quote-unquote and like you'll get nominated you could even win score and it just doesn't happen and it kind of just quietly goes away but we'll go more into that in a second so kevin we've stalled long enough. What the fuck is Saturday night fucking about?
0: (laughs) So it's basically about a group of friends that live in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Um, The, the main character of the friends being Gene, who is an assistant on wall street and, and dreams of striking it rich and moving up in society and going to parties at the Plaza. And he comes up with this scheme to uh, he gets wind from a, you know, young guy who works at, I think it's Merrill Lynch, who tells him, Oh, this stock of of market, uh, what's it called Merchant Merchant Chem? Yeah, Merchant Chem. Merchant Chem is gonna like hit big. And so you wanna get in early. So he and his buddies pool all their money and they they basically uh, go in on the stock. And of course, hijinks ensue and Jean meets a young woman named Helen, who is claiming she's Helene, Helene, and is a Southern debutante, you know, and they have, they, they, me, and then Somehow they end up at this apartment on Park Avenue. Like, it's like, and he he puts a down payment on the apartment when he, which is the money that's supposed to get invested in this stock, and then to pay for the stock that he has to purchase, he is babysitting his cousin who has the same name's car as him, and he le- loans the car and then has to end up selling the car to get the money. It's like, you know, it's very yeah. 1920s hijinks, and basically, Spoiler alert, we, he uses the money, he invests, the stock does not do what it's supposed to, they Mm. lose the money, now, or does he ever end up actually investing it?
1: He, I think, yes, Yes. he does. He does. What ends up happening, so, (laughs) yeah, it's, I was, I'm, like, reading the the synopsis, I'm, like, reading a couple of scenes, I'm, like, the fuck is this second act? There's, like, even a, because the sock starts to, like, bomb pretty soon into act two, or maybe it's the end of act one, plus he, like, proposes to Helen and all this stuff. Oh, yes, act one ends with the proposal. He, like, has a suicide attempt pretty early on in act two, with because Helen has a gun in her purse, but it ends up being a water gun. Yeah. And so it's, I guess it's supposed to be funny, but I'm like, that's not very funny. Well, what happens is what you learn
0: is at the top of act two. So basically, so he invests in the stock does poorly. And now Gene has owes all this money. He has this apartment. He just rented. He has this car he has to get back. And now he has to pay back all his buddies, the money. And what happens is there's a phone call that happens at the top of act two that Helen, who, cause the whole show kind of takes place around Gene's house. It's on the yes. front porch of the house. And there's a lot going on and the phone rings and Helen answers it. I think Gene's hiding out from the cops. Cause they, they were trying to get him because of the car. The cousin comes back.
1: To add to fucking confusion guys. I'm, I'm just like trying to
0: explain it.
1: To, you think guys, you think we're padding this episode. Let me tell you about what the Epstein's and Sondheim did to pad this fucking story. He tells the cops that the car was stolen. No, sorry. He tells, he tells his cousin, the car was stolen to like, get out of um trouble with having sold it. So then the cousin uh reports the car stolen to the cops. And I guess like because he and his cousin share the same name, there's like a lot of mix-ups about like which gene is who. Yes. Um and they
0: arrest the wrong gene. They arrest the cousin yeah trying to get to Gene the main character.
1: Yes. And then by the end what ends up happening is they lose the money on the stock, but the uh apartment that he put the down payment on, the people who owned the apartment decided they weren't going to sell so he gets the down payment back plus like extra somehow which there's like so, he maybe interest I don't know like uh, I think
0: Helen negotiates that I Helen think Helen the broker it well you have to pay interest yes
1: Helen I, negotiates I it so she you know proves her you know worth in staying in the musical for plot's sake and uh, they get he gets the money back and he's like gonna finally go to jail because he's gonna turn himself in but then the cops are like No, it's okay, Gene. So, all the everybody gets their money back plus like a little bit of profit anyway. And then Gene decides he doesn't want the fancy life. He's happy with just like where he's at, which him and Helen then sing, What more do I need? And there's no place like home. Curtain down. Everybody's there. We go. And there's
0: also a whole plot point about Helen's dad owns a chicken farm. And so she's like, The perfect life is just to go live on the chicken farm or work on the chicken farm. So then I guess they decide he's going to go um live on the chicken farm but the Mm -hmm. gun part comes from after Helen already knows that they're going to get the money back because she takes the phone call they end up going out I think Gene's like well we have this money we might as well spend it like who cares if we lose more and he gets very drunk and upset and that's when Helen's like well why don't you just take this gun knowing a he's not going to actually hurt himself and b that everything's going to work out right but she's trying to like quote teach him a lesson so. I just, I didn't find it very funny myself, but maybe that's just me. I don't know. It's I, very dark. It's very, like, you'd yeah. have to, that's, it's very
1: dark. Yes, and I like dark comedy. I don't know, I've, I've come to learn I'm a basic bitch. I think I'm esoteric, and I think I have this very high-cultured taste, but I've come to find out with this Sondheim series that all my favorite Sondheim stuff in his shows is, like, the basic stuff. Like, Pacific Overtures, I love Welcome to Kanagawa, and I love... uh um chrysanthemum tea but i do and i only like the end of poems when it starts to sound like a musical yeah. um, but that's because i'm a basic bitch <laughs> um yeah so that's the plot of saturday night guys there are you is. and are you um is your palate now uh, wet everyone for wanting to see a full-blown production of this show <laughs> i mean here's what
0: i think I think what this show needs clearly is we, somebody needs to come in and revise the book. And mm-hmm. if you take it more into like the drowsy chaperone style of slapstick heightened hijinks and everything's overblown, I, you know, there's a chance that we could salvage this.
1: The score also kind of needs to get rearranged because the score, well, and I've li- I have to emphasize again, I've now listened to this score all the way through maybe eight times in the last 48 hours like start to finish like I just kept going back uh, back to front all the time this score is not super exciting musically speaking like it doesn't have a lot of fizzle a lot of uh, a lot of bubbles like a lot of energy to it it's a very kind of smooth jazz kind of score it's very suave and for a musical that has a lot of plot points to it that's supposed to kind of be madcap it doesn't have that like max Senate um High jinxy energy to it except for maybe the fin- act one finale um everything yeah. else everything else is a little more like ba- ba-da, 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 ba-da.
0: yeah it's it's simple and charming but like very of that the sound of the time which is is in a way like easy listening so it's i was thinking that one of the uh, now did you listen to are you what did you listen to more, the London re- world premiere recording or the second stage recording?
1: The second stage recording is the one I've listened to more.
0: Yeah, because that for me, I mean, comparing the two, like the second stage, at least has energy behind it. That London yeah. recording and a and a full orchestra. Yeah, the tempos in that London recording, I was like, oh my gosh, let's move this along, people. But mm-hmm. the 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 I was listening on like I did the same thing as you, where I I kind of listened to it a few times and one of the times listening to it that opening number of Saturday night which is so so cute and simple but I was like we need it needs like an injection of adrenaline like these boys are it's Saturday night they're you know they're horny they want to go out they want to be with the girls and they're kind of just singing this like you know soft shoey type number like this show and actually in one of the reprises they pick up the tempo and it kind of has this energy as this, as the stakes of the show are going up. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where I was like, this is where we need to start and go up from there. So yeah, yeah, I agree. There's just kind of like an ease to it all. And
1: it's very pleasant, the opening number, but again, because it's, it's, it's not an opening that excites the audience. It's melodically really pretty. You know what it kind of is? It's sort of, Uh, showing the kind of languid energy of when you're alone on at home and like you're not sure what to do it's it's the whole song has the energy of a what do you want to do I don't know what do you want to do which is very relatable exactly Um, and I've talked about this on the pod before Uh, you know Sondheim talks about what he learns from Jerome Robbins is like the difference between like what the show needs and what uh, is realistic for the characters and it's important to remember he wrote this before he met Jerome Robbins so like in his mind he's probably like realistically speaking these guys wouldn't like really be hopped up on energy and be like oh what are we going to do they're like you know i don't know this stuff but if Jerome Robbins had come in he'd be like steve happier give me that this is what the show needs
0: he is a revival of
1: ben ha goes in at 915 at the cushman So when I got my mind on sex, who gives a damn for Francis X. Bushman?
0: The moon's like an overloaded Moxie sign. It shines at you
1: friendly and bright. I got my bodies and my bodies are fine, but not on a Saturday night even from this score alone you already see the talent he has for lyric writing which i mean he talks about it all the time like he always thought of himself as a composer and like a lyricist second but the the natural talent he has for lyric writing and then on top of that he's so much more critical of lyric writers than he is of composers uh so p- i'm part of me wonders if he's like kind of leaned into that now but you hear it with saturday night like his his talent for lyrics just like the cleverness of the wordplay is already so apparent it's like just it's you can't deny it
0: yeah and even reading his the annotations in finishing the hat when he talks about with this these lyrics that you know the sins of lyric writing that he commits Mm -hmm. it's so it's it's a brilliant and it also is like you want to be like, Steve, you're being so hard on yourself. Like these lyrics are so funny and clever and smart. And they're so much better than what, you know, so much that's out there. Like, yeah. you were 23, let it go, you know, but he's, you're right. He's so critical. And so, and, and I, you know, there is something to be said for his, as a composer, lyricist, his dedication it, to the lyric, um at least in my opinion, first, mm-hmm. Which is not always, you know, happens with composer lyricists, and especially like a lot of I think what contemporary musical theater shows suffer from is a lack of of the the score is superior to the lyrics within it. So it feels like somebody wrote this beautiful song, and then somebody kind of came in and shoehorned lyrics in a way, you know, like contemporary
1: shows don't have the poeticism necessarily all the time, and like and the restraint, uh, yeah. especially especially with music, yeah. Well, so. I do t- I talked about this with um Sunset Boulevard because uh Matt Lisey came on to talk about that and then I kind of dragged the show for a while just because and it's it 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 comes from a purely objective standpoint if people like the show I have no judgment on them whatsoever and like there are things about the show that are effective for sure because the music is very um grand and sweepy but it is a show where the music has such an emphasis and such a priority in the show where you think about a song like with one look or as if we never said goodbye, which are these four minute songs that accomplish dramatically speaking nothing. They don't tell you anything new about Norma or anything about the situation that couldn't be uh, done in literally a verse. Right. You know? Uh, And that said, People still really enjoy it but it's it's one of those things that always bug me and what i appreciate about sondheim with his songs and you see it with this is that he, it's already so important to him with uh and you see it with saturday night that the lyrics convey new depth to a character or progress something with the story moving forward or like give you a new attitude like something new has to be revealed whether it's story or character or uh theme you know
0: yeah and i mean even with his song like loves a bond that is just like the voice on the radio, right? Or the singer at the lounge or whatever. Like even those lyrics are smart and tie into the theme of the show, this idea of this Wall Street and make very clever, period appropriate jokes. And, you know, like even even when he's writing this, oh, this is just a a bandstand song. Mm -hmm. It's smart. It's smart
1: writing. You know what song has... Uh, so the song that I was listening to that really kind of grew on me over each listen is the song Isn't It, yes. which is sung by yes. Helene Helen. It's it's her intro song. So to give you an idea, fellow listeners, what's happening, uh, Gene goes to the plaza. Uh, do, do we remember why he's going to the plaza? Does he have any reason other than the fact that he just wants to be fancy? It's what he does on Saturday
0: nights. He just oh, he... goes up and tries to get into these parties.
1: Yeah, um, that's, that's like Gene's whole spiel is that he's trying to become like part of the elite and that's sort of his I want song is this song called class and again speaking of a song with no real motor behind it the music in class is like just very smooth jazz or swung music it ain't no wizard and I it ain't no wizard and I it ain't no in my own little corner with that little uh, chime you know what I mean yes that triangle yes
0: in my own little corner anyone out there listening if you ever sing in my own little corner it is an uptempo you move that thing
1: You move that fucking She is,
0: it's a daydream, but she has a strong one and you better move that tempo. I always tell people, push it, push it, push it.
1: Well, like (laughs) basically the way that I view sort of ballads is like you have to earn a ballad and it's really hard to make a ballad interesting out of context because they're meant to be a moment of reflection in a show, right? So when you do a ballad in a concert or in a class, it just sort of feels a little indulgent. So you need to kind of always have your mind on that and how to, you know, engage the audience when, you know, Ballads are sort of, by definition, for the singer, right? Um, Yeah. So it's not to say that class is a ballad. It's not, but it feels a bit like a ballad. This is why a room is a flat. You don't say tie, you call it cravat. Say you drink from a tumbler instead of a glass. That's the mark of someone who has what I call class. But isn't it, what I like about is isn't it? So Jean goes to the plaza and he meets Helene, neither one of them can get in. And so they decide that they're gonna dance together sort of in the lobby of the plaza to the music that's playing inside. And she sings the song, isn't it? And the lyrics are like, "Um, this is nice, isn't it? I mean the music. This is nice, isn't it? I mean the band, Um, which I love because it's, first of all, it's adorable. It's very cute, very charming but it's also super relatable where it's like you have instant chemistry with someone and you haven't, it's very, if I loved you in the like, I'm not going to say anything. Cause I want you to say it, but I am going to leave you some breadcrumbs so you can say it first. So it's, yes. it's, it's, it's like, they immediately have this attraction to each other. It's very clear. And it's clear that she's aware of it. She's obviously like much more um, uh, self-aware than Jean is. And, when they're dancing and she sings this song it's her way of being like oh you know the, the this is this is nice what we're doing i mean you know dancing yeah it's it's like it's, oh
0: it's it's very it's very like i mean it's very it, it's dated in a way but it's very like um i i want to make the first move but i i can't and so i'm i'm trying hello hello mm-hmm. can you make the first move
1: hello? well you that's that's sort of um part of what uh baby it's cold outside is actually about which people never realize do you know what I'm talking about yes because that song is supposed to be uh, a commentary on how women are not allowed to be openly sexual in the 40s and yep. 50s and so it's her trying to be like oh i can't do it but like pester me a little more and maybe i'll say yes like it's like oh how can you know anyway point is yes. i'm using that to connect it to this song because of the era in which the song takes place as well as the era in which it was written Women are not overtly sexual. So they have to kind of let men make the first move. But on top of that, just in terms of like a purely coy kind of way that I think we all still can relate to, uh, where it's like if you meet somebody and it's not on the grounds of a date. So it's not like a Tinder date. It's something like you meet at a party or whatever. And you don't want to necessarily say, I think you're cute. Let's go out sometime. It's like, Oh, um, you like this too? Oh, that's yeah, interesting. Like you do the slight little touch on the arm yeah. and it's all supposed to just sort of feel accidental. So they can sort of realize how you feel without you ever having to say it. Yeah. Um, And I just think it's really, it's very rarely do I ever think of a Sondheim song as adorable. This is one of the songs that I think is adorable.
0: This is nice, isn't it? I mean the
1: music. This is nice, isn't it? I mean, the band. Don't you think we make natural partners? I mean, like food and drink, or supply and demand. I want to bring up this song because You're Sondheim so uses bad, other songs as an example, I mean which is um sort of a list song. Oh, Do you know a song I'm about to talk about?
0: Uh, a list uh, song. Oh, exhibit A.
1: Yes, yes, ma'am. Yeah. Sondheim usually hates list songs. And the song he always references is 100 Easy Ways to Lose a Man from Wonderful Town, where Rosalind Russell's singing and she gets to, through the first one. Then she says, ni- or n- first two, and she goes, 98 Ways to Go, which usually gets a huge laugh. But Sondheim said when he saw it, his mind went, oh, God, we've got 98 more to get through exactly
0: um
1: and he said the same thing about a chorus line he said which he did say with the chorus line uh you know i sat there and i went oh god we we'll have to go through everybody's story down the line but then he also said that michael bennett was sort of ahead of him on that and then was able to sort of do the montage sequence and other stuff so you're never actually going right down the line right. so it was, it was michael bennett's way of being like i see you steve i see what you're thinking and no that's not what's going to happen uh but exhibit a is kind of that song it's exactly that
0: song. <laughs> I was trying to be kind but yes it's exactly that song I'll admit this is and I I think Chris Fitzgerald on the recording is brilliant and you know Chris Fitzgerald himself is brilliant but this one is I you know I listened to it a couple times but it became yeah. a skip and I I thought the same thing I, I, my mind went to the to Sondheim talking about hundred easy ways to lose a guy like I when we start and we get through exhibit a and then there's a whole verse. And then we get to exhibit B and there's a whole verse. And by the time we get to C, I'm like, there is no way we are sitting through 26 verses of the song. Please tell me no. Yeah.
1: Like, but he but we go pretty fucking far. We, we go all the way to up to H. 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 Yes. Also, <laughs> um yeah, I was gonna say Christopher Fitzgerald does about as good a job with this as anyone could. Uh because he is tough. yeah, he is Christopher Fitzgerald. He he is an amazing comedian like one of the best we have right now and he does about as good a job with this as he possibly could um but it's tough it's long it doesn't have any major arc there's also a verse that's a little date rapey that i don't love yeah there's one about hiding the keys in your pocket so she can't get out it's like that's not cute yeah
0: it's like you know it's very you could see like in 1954 like oh this is cute this 19 or 16 year old the character 16 i like thinking mm. about this but it's like come on but yeah, yeah I mean the only payoff for me of this whole song it's after we make it all the way to h is the final line where he 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 goes back in and goes a b c d e f g h and then the next line is I rest my case like that punchline to me is like okay I get why we had to go up to h to get that mm. punchline, but still it's yeah it's, I, yeah, it's very chorus line. It's very, very wonderful town. It's very like, wow, we are settling because we got 26 verses to go through. In theory. Exactly.
1: I think that there could have been a way for Sondheim to get to H and not have it be so verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Find a way to condense it. Maybe do two cases in a verse. I don't know. Yes. Notes. I've got notes for you, Steve. Yeah, we'll send those over to Steve.
0: Music, if it's slow and smooth, hath charms to soothe the savage breast. Get her stretched out and let rhythm do the rest. That fascinating rhythm. Exhibit D
1: A cushion. Were there any songs you wanted to bring up immediately? We will get into What More Do I Need, although we have yeah. already kind of talked about it. Well, I mean, we, we,
0: we've we touched on it, most of them, but the other one that I think stands out as far as just the early seedlings of a young Steve is... I love that we've, we're just calling him Steve like we know him. like all the, I mean, we could also just call him Daddy. Daddy! Um, But is, um, is in the movies, which is... I'd be interested to do like a really true dramaturgical deep dive of material of, of the shows written at the time, because in the movies is this standalone scene that is, you know, yeah a, a Sondheim group number, a la A Weekend in the Country, you Very know, much. a la, I mean, the whole prologue of Into the Woods, you know, like it's, it's just this, and I, I would be interested to see if it was... If it's not the first, it must be one of the early versions where an entire scene is this musical number.
1: Yeah, it's, I think it's probably one of the first in this style. I think Most Happy Fella" comes out a year or two later, but that's more of an opera or operetta, I should say. Um, It's this and then there's another one and it's not in Finishing the Happy, you hear it on the recording, which is the... um, uh what's it called like nice to meet you it's when Mildred first appears and they do like it's what could just be a one-page scene is a two-minute musical dialogue delighted I'm sure delighted I'm sure that's it yeah where it's just you know everyone's being introduced to Mildred and it's all it's really established in the song is like Mildred's excited to meet all these boys who she's kind of collectively going on a date with and all the boys kind of figuring out like how much money they have, what they're going to spend money on, who actually has Mildred as the date and, right. and all this other stuff. And then I do love, um, it's it's a very um, prescient line, which is when Mildred introduces herself to Bobby Christopher Fitzgerald, who, as we learn, isn't going to the movies with them because he has a date coming to the house to meet him. All Mildred says is like, nice to meet you. And Bobby's like, hey, 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 I have a date tonight. And yes, it's like, it's very,
0: <laughs> it's cute
1: yeah and and is like it's one of those things that no one i don't think at that time was ever writing it social interactions that way between men and women of uh, and like commenting on it of the whole like the woman saying like oh it's it's nice to meet you and the guy being like hey calm down lady i i got a girlfriend like calm down or or she's like oh yeah my my gentleman acquaintance like hey calm down lady i'm just saying hi um Exactly. Yeah, I like that he does that because I think that's, if anything, that's probably the legacy of Saturday Night. It's a very, you know, like the whole show, it's charming. It's these young Yeah, it's, when I talk when I say like that the score is not something that I really love, I'm not saying that like, there's no merit to it. It's more like the songs that stick out stick out for me, but there are just as many songs that I kind of forget about as soon as it's over. Yes. Um, in the movies is weirdly one of those songs for me, not because I like, I do think the lyrics are really clever. And I like the whole concept of this sort of musicalization of a, of a scene where it's, you know, you have the two girls looking at all the movie posters and the boys are trying to pull pulling their money together and uh and whatnot. But like it, for a song that goes on this long, that's it's a five minute song and to have it encompass so much, it doesn't really build to a proper ending. And I wonder, does it, go into dialogue afterwards because on the no, recording it's,
0: it's it just, just ends? its own scene.
1: Okay, because on the yeah. recording it just kind of ends and you're like oh.
0: Yeah, I mean I wonder I'd be interested to see like how they staged it at second stage or mm. you know like what um you know like what the transition was but but it really um it kind of is a standalone let's see where it's going to. Yeah, there's a the transition and then we're into we're back on the porch.
1: Yeah. So I think like 80% of the show takes place on Gene's porch. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And you have little things that take place. Like, you know, one scene at the Plaza, one scene at the movies, one scene of that empty apartment that, uh, you know, where Gene decides she's going to put it, going to put a yeah. town payment on. Yeah. Which.
0: Well, the second stage production, I mean the, the, you know, if you've ever been to second stage, it's not a huge stage. It's. No. And basically what they did is the set was the front porch with the steps and the front of the house. And then they would, the, the, the front of the house was a wall that would fly. And then when they were in other scenes, they were kind of on the platform. So they were, it, it's, it is so much on the porch that the porch was kind of a unit set.
1: Yeah. Um Sondheim talks about how he feels like in retrospect, Saturday night was sort of the first chamber musical before that was ever really a thing, or at least it would have been if it was ever produced. And, he's right it's like it's a relatively small musical and there's no like big ensemble everybody has a name everyone has an has a narrative so to speak and i don't know i part of me was wondering like how this show would have actually been received had it actually opened that season or even the uh following couple of seasons where it might have happened again and we, we will get into that as we talk about sort of the legacy um we talked about in the movies, we talked about um, what more do I need much earlier. Uh, have we talked about... There's a, So there's the song, I Remember That, and I just bring it up because you made a reference to it earlier, and I want people to know that what you were referencing so they get the joke. Yes. This, a, this is one of my faves. It's a cute song. Uh, I love in Finishing the Hat. So for, most of Sondheim's notes in Finishing the Hat for this are mostly just him being like, I wrote this lyric and I hate it. This lyric has a problem. This lyric has a problem. Like... yeah talk about more stuff but i remember that so the premise is there's a married couple in the show like there's they're the oldest of the group of characters which means like they're probably 20 you know yes
0: um this is the andrea burns and clark thorell role
1: yes and they have a song called i remember that where they talk about their first date and the whole joke is like he goes on for the first half and he sings how the date went and then she sings the second half where she basically corrects him on everything but the what makes it cute is at the end they're like We, you know, we might not remember everything the same, but what we do remember is we both fell in love that night. And that's all that matters. It's very sweet. And what I love about it is that in finishing the hat, Sondheim uses it as a moment to shade Alan J. Lerner, who he does not really care for as a lyricist, (laughs) because he's like, some of you listening to this song might be thinking, hmm, this is giving me very Gigi, I remember it well vibes, which is fair. But just know that I wrote this five years before Gigi. So mm, sorry about it. And like she came out in 59 and I wrote this in 54. So mm, sorry about it. And but, it's very shady and petty and I love it.
0: Yes, it is. Um, it is very funny. And I had that same thought the first time I heard it, but I think it's so, it is. It's very similar to, I remember it well, but it's fun to have kind of the young take on it, the mm-hmm. young version of it. And also, I mean, just the end of it, the one that gets me and that's where there's so many moments in the show that just touch to like the inner romantic in me which um only comes out to play like every once in a very great while but (laughs) but when you know it's cute because celeste you know hank sets up his whole like how he remembers it and celeste then you know is like well it's not exactly how it was and you weren't as smooth and debonair as you Mm -hmm. remember and then what's brilliant is In his verse, Hank says, you know, for I'd fall in love with you, for I'd fallen in love with you. And Celeste then counters all of that and it ends with, but I'd fallen in love with you. And I think that's like, that's so sweet. That is a very, I, to me, there's something so truthful in, despite all of that, I still managed to fall in love with you. And now here we are all these years later and I'm in love with you even more, you know, it's Mm -hmm. very, um. If I, uh, not if I loved you, what, uh, uh, fiddler on the roof. Um,
1: do I, uh, do you love me?
0: You love me, you know, it's very yes.
1: well. So, the different, yeah, as you said, the difference between this and I remember it well is I remember that art is two lovers sort of at the beginning of their time together. You know, it's sweet that they kind of look back on their first date and it's like, oh, we're old and wiser now. It's like they probably have been married for what, like six months, something like that very brief yeah and in their mind they're like oh we're the mature ones but there's a wistfulness about i remember it well which comes from the fact that these are two characters who are much older and haven't seen each other in years and it's much more friendly it's people you know who have a history and have had love and hate with each other but they're at a point now in their lives where all that doesn't really matter anymore and they they talk about it in a much more sort of conversational jovial way and this is much more just romantic. Yeah. Um, And I'm not saying one is better than the other. I like both for very different reasons. Um, Yes.
0: It's, it's very, you know, I remember that is they're still in the relationship. They're still in love. It's, it's about the promise of what's to come. And I remember it well is they're not in the relationship. They didn't end up together. And it's kind of the idea of what could have been in a way. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be really fun to um, put the two songs together in some sort of show, and have like, you know, what comes to my—I mean, they're in my heads because we were talking about Sondheim on Sondheim, but having the like, you know, Barbara Cook, Norm Lewis of it all mm-hmm. saying, "I remember it well." To the, you know, Leslie Kritzer, um, you know, who, who, who else was in that? Um, you know, younger lovers. As yeah. you, who,
1: who was the other one? Was was it you and Morton? Is the other one or no? Yes, you and Morton. Thank okay. you. Okay. Yeah, it was. Um. Yeah, I will say, while I remember that warms my heart, there's something a little like like very softly heartbreaking at the end of uh, I Remember It Well. Right, did I say I remember it well twice? I meant I remember that I find to be so charming, but there's something sweetly uh, uh, heartbreaking in I Remember It Well at the end when he can't remember anything about how they met and their time together. And he says, have I gotten old? And she says, oh, no. Not you. And it just makes oh. my heart shatter into a million pieces.
0: I know. Especially and the way that
1: Hermione Gingold says it. I'm like, oh fuck me up.
0: I know. And it, w- it was Victoria Clark in the revival, right?
1: It was indeed. Yeah.
0: And who was the guy?
1: Howard McGillan.
0: Oh right. I was at
1: opening night of that show.
0: Oh right. I love that. I mean, I love, you know.
1: You love that I was at opening night.
0: <laughs> I love I love that for you. That's a good luck. I lo-
1: love that journey for you, babe.
0: Um, I mean, that we, we're, we won't get into that, but the Victoria Clark and D. Hody of it all. I mean, come on. The fact that we have lived to see D. Hody and Victoria Clark together on a Broadway stage is we are how blessed we are.
1: I met D. Hody, and when I told her I was at opening night of Gigi, she went, mm, beautiful costumes. <laughs> Very Aretha Franklin. We love it. We, we stand a legend. Yes. Any other songs you want to bring up? Have we talked about so many people that we much? haven't? But we
0: have to because I put it in my wedding and it has it means so much to me.
1: I'm so fucking sick and tired of hearing how you're married, Kevin. How I you know. have a husband. You had a wedding. I know. I find it very uh, homophobic, and you're attacking me and my life. I know. So, I know. Day. I know. Gay rights. What can gay rights? I say. I'm gonna eat a block of cheese after the after this, and I can't digest cheese. So you <laughs> led me to this.
0: <laughs> How's that going for you? Many people in the world don't
1: know what they've missed. They'd never believe such joy could exist. And if they tell us it's a thing we'll outgrow,
0: they're jealous as they can be. That was so- to me, it's the most beautiful song he's ever written. It is, I just am, I love the melody. I love the sentiment behind it. I think the opening verse is um, you know, it it makes its point and is, but it's, it's once you get into, you know, out of the whole, I thought the man would be rich and have this castle and I'll settle mm-hmm. for you, you know, and you get into so many people in the world, it just this idea of there's, you know, all these people in the world and at some point you find by a bunch of, you know, atoms bouncing around, you find like the person that you wanna spend the rest of your life with in theory. It's, 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 it's Broadway at its most romantic. And I just, I, I fall for it. We, we, for the wedding, we did this, my wedding ceremony was an hour long and was basically a Broadway concert. Um, and we did, we paired this with my romance. And so that was kind of the, the mashup, if you will.
1: I love that. Yeah. Um. There's a lot of Bill vibes to this song, which I really like.
0: Ooh, I've never thought of that.
1: I don't think it's intentional, and I don't think sometimes no, I've ever really thought of it. Yeah. But especially with the opening
0: yeah. verse, yeah. I mean, it's not nearly as dark as Bill, but yes.
1: Well, Bill, so Bill in context of Showboat is <laughs> devastating. <laughs> but on its own, Bill is a really beautiful song.
0: Have you ever heard the story of Audrey McDonald singing that song? To Bill Cosby, yes. Yeah, which now in hindsight is like lols, but also like the thought of she was at this tribute to Bill Cosby and she chose my bill. And as she's singing it, she's realizing what she's saying about yep. this man, which now is like, maybe you were right, girl. Yeah, at
1: the, well, we look back at that now. We're like, work, bitch. You sing the song that tells him that he's not like any of the good people in the world. <laughs> but, at the, but at the time she was like, it was like, ooh, this cringy story where I messed up. Um, yes, but that's just the beauty of Audra is that she can have the cringy story. And then 10 years later, it becomes a moment of triumph.
0: I mean, everything Audra ever does is a moment of triumph. So it's just, it's
1: fitting that it just took 10 years for us to realize that that was one of those moments. That bitch collapsed in the middle of her final callback and she still booked the job. God, I love that story. Nothing that woman does is ever a fail. Uh, I love that. I saw her very first performance
0: back from 110 after she had to take that time off because her father Mm -hmm. passed. And I sat in the front row it was the most emotional performance I've ever seen. I was obsessed.
1: Uh, I loved her in that show. I had a professor at... Skewel, who really didn't like her but also didn't like well so mm. and this is this is I don't know this was the moment in college when I was like oh, I, well this is the one in the when I was in college where I was like oh you're like we're not gonna get along the rest of my time here because this was like the professor that was like the professor of all professors he was one who was like gonna teach us how to be actors in theater and like be singing actors and he said and for like the first year and a half, he was also my advisor and like for the first year and a half I'm like okay fine like you've got things to say I understand it and a lot of people at that school were very much like drinking the kool-aid of him and then I remember it was sophomore year no yeah it was end of sophomore year and he's going through like certain actors in theater that he thought were like good singing actors and those who he thought weren't and for him like the ultimate was Bernadette Peters but at, at the time I was like yeah no sure makes yeah. sense she's Bernadette and he's like yeah you know Audra McDonald, Kristen Chenoweth, Sutton Foster—they're all about the voice. And <gasps> I, sat, I sat there, and in my brain, I said, "Oh, the next two years of my time here with you are going to be very unpleasant." And I'm—I was, I was like, "I'm going to fight this man to the end of my uh, time till I get that degree," and I'm I
0: did. So offended. I'm offended. I'm offended for them. Also, like the m- mansplaining of it all about these women. Like, mm-hmm. oh. My uh, gosh, my head would explode. Oh,
1: I sat there. I kept a cool head. To be fair, he directed a production of Into the Woods that same year. That was the most boring thing I ever saw. So, there so you I go. was like, I was like, yeah, there you go. Um, the whole thing was uh, brightly lit. There were two trees. We called it Into the Desert. And <laughs> there was there were no stakes, no emotions whatsoever. Everything was very subdued. Like it was filmed for television. Threatly. And I was like, how dare you? We are in a 1200 seat theater and there's a 90 foot giant, quote unquote, stage, And everyone is talking like they're in the living room. Fuck you. Oh <laughs> my God. That's the man who said that Sutton Foster and Audra were all about the voice. So I I, I, I am appalled. Oh no, i yes, you and me both. And as I said, that was the moment where I went, Oh, I'm going to like listen to everything you say with a handful of salt. Yeah. And just if, the whole container. Whereas like other people were like, oh, I'm taking it it all in and like maybe I'll find one or two things that I don't like. I'm like, I'm rejecting all of it. And maybe there's one or two things you say that I'll think is okay. Like
0: I also just like question a professor of musical theater, shaping the young minds of like the future of the industry, Mm -hmm. bad mouthing luminaries of, of, of the industry. Like we, you know, it's like these people, whether or not they're your taste is fine, but they have paved the way for the rest of us, and have especially those three women have have transformed how we view what is possible in in theater
1: and on Broadway. And it, it was a very they were, they were very pointed shaking. examples. Well, and on top of all of that, it's important to like again, you people can be not to your taste, but you it is your responsibility as an educator, especially for theater, where you're trying to train people to get into the industry of saying like, hey. You know, look at the people who are successful. Like I, I was working on a project with someone, and this person wanted the thing to be a love letter to New York City with his music. That's all like jazzy, you know, music—not the best kind of jazzy music, but still jazzy music. And I say to the man, I say, um, "Okay, love letter to a city, blah, blah blah." Like, have you seen La La Land? And he goes, "Yes." And I hated it. And I go, "Whether you hated it, it is not important. It's a, it's an endeavor about a metropolis." in modern day, using the same style of music you're trying to use, and it made $500 million. So you have to look at what made it click with people. And that same attitude has to be applied to professors where they're like, listen, you can love Audra. I don't personally, but it is my job to show you her and say like, this is someone who's working all the time. Why is that? Like, at least from a professional perspective of this is someone who is like getting it done. That is like what the standard is right now. Right. Um, just on a purely like go get jobs kind of level. Everything else is up for debate for sure. But I, it almost was like this person went into my brain, picked three of my absolute favorites and said no. And rather than me crushed about it, I, my immediate 20 year old thought was, oh, you're garbage. Thank God for you for that. It's just, I mean, you know, we don't have to harp on it, but the, the Audra of it all. is. Oh, I would love to, to harp me. on
0: it, please. The, the Audra of it all is the funniest to me because Audra has tr- transcended... M- every medium possible and mm-hmm. has made a career out of not only Broadway musicals, but has won Tony awards for straight plays and has been on television shows and in movies where there is not a vocal in sight. You know, like there uh-huh. is, there is n- no denying that this is an act. I would consider Audra, even with her opera degree to be
1: an actress first and foremost. Yeah. I absolutely. mean, absolutely. It's Yeah, no, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. I'm, I'm still holding
0: out hope that we're going to get an Audra McDonald Devil Wears Prada. I just think that that would be spectacular.
1: I want I I want to see Audra be funny again. She's so funny.
0: She's Here's what we need to do
1: now. with Devil Wears Prada, and I'm not involved with it, sadly. So I I have
0: I have no 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 dice in this game. But I I want Devil Devil Wears Prada on Broadway to do something where they they get like every possible woman who can play that role and mm-hmm. rotate them out like every 6 months. And so it and not even treat it like a replacement. Like cuz there are it's the list of who should play that role mm-hmm. is is pages long and I'll be heartbroken to not see all of them. You know like
1: mm. <laughs> starting it's, with her. Well, I want to know exactly what they're doing with that musical because and this is, well actually this is very something to discuss because I talked about it with Do I Hear a Waltz and we'll talk about it with other stuff too. Miranda's a character to me that i'm not entirely sure if i want her sung because i think a lot of her power comes from what she withholds and keeps a mystery so they what it's a challenge for the writers of that musical to do to make her sing and not give away any of that power so i'm not saying that it's impossible i'm saying it's an interesting hurdle to overcome uh
0: so i'm interested to see how they go about it i agree i actually also think they're in good hands i think um Elton John is very good about writing powerful women. I mean, mm-hmm. look at Aida, right? And, and Shayna Taub is And Shayna Taub is a lyricist, is there's nobody more perfect in this yeah. young and in a way their dynamic, you know, even though I, yeah, it would be interesting if to have a female composer write that show, but even the dynamic between Elton and Shayna, the older generation and the younger generation very much parallels Miranda and and um I, I want to call her Andy, but Andy. Yeah. And um, I think it's fascinating. I think, you know, where my brain goes, and I've been talking about this a lot with that show is um, I in in everything that's going on, and we'll talk about this when we get to dreamcast of this show, but I am would be I, I would I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying for them to cast two women of color in those roles, mm-hmm. because I want I think it would be fascinating to have part of the story become this older woman of color who's risen to power and overcome all of the BS and misogyny and systemic racism to get where she is, then be so mean to this younger woman. And you find out it's because she is actually doing everything in her power to help this younger woman succeed. Like, you know, you have to be careful with the, with the, um, the ethnicities of those characters Mm -hmm. and their dynamics. Um, But I would be, I would be gagged to see two like strong women of color. Can you tell I've thought about this
1: show a lot? I'm very excited for it. Well, I love that. There's also, there can be almost an underlying level of resentment as well, which I think is there even without race, but can be there, especially with race, which is like, do you know the shit that I went through to get where I am? And you just think you can get a job because times are different. Yeah. And it's like, no, I'm actually going to be extra hard on you because of all the things that I went through that like, not only uh, is it going to make you work harder for it, you're going to be a better professional once you're through, once I'm through with you. Um, Yes. And that's what I love about it. And I think that could absolutely be in there. So yeah, I sign on. Yeah. I you know I think this is a great, you know, it's like, it's a show
0: that we know and a a property we know, and it's um, two very powerful women that were white in the movie. And so it's like now's the chance to let's see what color conscious casting really looks like and how it plays like what
1: that yeah. really means and dig in so
0: but you know this is not that this isn't a podcast about Devil
1: Prada. I'll come back. it goddamn that. should be because i'm <laughs> done talking about saturday night let me fucking tell you um final thoughts on saturday night as a show before we go into legacy and history
0: you know i i like i said i mean i respond to this show it's i in in shows that i love i find that I always kind of loved the chamber musicals, the early shows, you know, like the Violets, the Man of No Importance. Sure, um, speaking of know, Sally Murphy. The, the Speaking of Sally Murphy, um, the Floyd Collins of it all. So I, I know that what I like in musical theater, there's a lot of that in the show. I think that the score has, it's very interesting to, you know, like we've talked about, listen to with the knowledge of the career that was to come and the work that was to come. I don't necessarily need a big splashy Broadway revival of this, but I do think there's a world in which it would be fun to see another off Broadway production. We'll get to that when we talk about dreamcasting. Mm-hmm. But and I also think this would be a really fun show to kind of see done if we were doing a Sondheim tribute season somewhere where, you know, it would be fun to bring this into play and not just recycle another into the woods, another company, another Follies, another, mm-hmm. you know, like throw this one in there let's why don't we do a season with this and pacific overtures and somebody oh, put- like a like what they
1: do at the kennedy center right? yeah,
0: yeah like let's do some. you know it's like it would be fun to exam and uh, to uh, allow an audience a chance to watch this show in the context of S- of sondheim's entire career
1: i would like to see this um paired with if we were doing like say like a Sondheim cycle so like with the Kennedy Center what they did was they did three shows sort of in rotation and then did another three shows in rotation I would like to see this in rotation with um Merrily and Roadshow Merrily because about young people and Roadshow because it's of the same era that it takes place in and it's also sort of bookending his career that way so I think that'd be really interesting to see um, I, I don't know awesome. if I want to see like on a double bill with Pacific Overtures. I think that's a little too much of like, <laughs> a a, too out there. yeah, it's a little too much like having a cheeseburger and following it up with um like ginger, you know, yes. like like eating a handful of ginger.
0: No, I think your idea of Merrily and, and Roadshow is very smart.
1: Thank you. Well, some people have called me smart, but I'm
0: one of those.
1: Thank you. I say those people are either you or they're drunk. So <laughs> yeah, it's... It, the legacy of Saturday night is hard to kind of really figure out because the show never really came out. Um, And when, and when it did uh, the, the Sondheim impact had already kind of happened. And when it was performed, it was done in such a small setting and didn't have a lot of hoopla about it. So there was never really any chance for it to have a major impact. I think the two big songs from the show are sort of what carries it over. And it sort of, it's nice to sort of think of it, as a retrospective like it's nice to I think you have to pair Saturday night with literally any other Sondheim show that's the only way to kind of think about it and to listen to it is when you like and and it could be Pacific Overtures it could be Company it could be Follies and you're just pairing it with anything else he's written since then to just sort of see the connections and the differences and how he's grown and also maybe how he's hardened a bit at the same time um and how yeah. he sort of and he also found his own voice
0: yeah and it also is kind of you know again like I, there is a way to, I think, do a standalone off-Broadway production, and I think it would be fascinating to go in and retool the book, and sure. keep the score, and or even re- do some new arrangements with the score, and and you know because it never really had this Broadway production that it is kind of this we're still working. I mean, I talked to Donald Corrin about it a little bit. Um, about his experience at second stage and he made a good point. He said, you know, the book was unfinished, uh, you know, and then Mm -hmm. they died and Steve through the second stage production was kind of a book babysitter. He didn't want major changes made. He wanted it kind of done as is, and he made some edits here and there, Mm -hmm. but for that production, he wanted it to kind of be representative of what it was in the fifties. And now that we have that now what happens if we go back in and reexamine it?
1: Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the show opened at second stage, like I said, uh, in the year 2000, I believe it was on, I have the exact date here written down somewhere. Uh, it, I think it was January, right? Was it, it was either January or February? Um, because they had, a, they actually had a very long preview process. Yeah. So it opened February 17th in the year 2000. I think it started previews like January 1st or January 2nd. Um yeah and did previews for a very long time, uh, directed and choreographed by Kathleen Marshall. We love Mm -hmm. to see it. Uh, Starring Lauren Ward, Christopher Fitzgerald, Andrea Burns, Natasha Diaz, so many, many people. Uh, It wins the Drama Desk Award for best lyrics. So that's nice. Good for Steve. how exciting. Yeah, Uh, it kind of slowly disappears. It's done at Mufti at the York for a hot second as we talked about before. Yeah, and talk about that cast too
0: it Margot was Lindsay S- Mendez and Andrew- Lindsay
1: Mendez was the Andrea Burns role. And mm-hmm. um Andrew Keenan Bolger's in it, or was yes, it?
0: Yes. Ben Fankhauser uh. is opposite Lindsay. Um and you have um oh no, maybe Bank, maybe Ben was the no, was Ben she- was opposite Lindsay. And um, Margot Siebert was
1: Helen. Oh, that's nice. That's a great cast. Yeah. Yeah. That's, the thing about this show is that like despite the fact that I don't particularly care for it the opportunities for casting are endless because you can cast such personable performers in it. And it's not the most rangy score. So you don't even have to think of like, oh, who's the best singer in the world? You have to think of someone who's like, who's a good singing actor, you know? Yeah. And they um, got
0: lucky with that. Sec- I mean, not lucky, but that second stage production. I mean, it was a huge deal at the time. It was very exciting that this basically new Sondheim musical. And so they, they really... You know, even in talking to both Donald and Tara about it, everyone has very fond memories and looks back on that. It's a very special thing for everybody because yeah. of what it was. And they were able to get, like, really good people mm-hmm. to do this two-month off operatory run. Of course, always with the hope that it's going to transfer. But, you know, yeah, but yeah the, the casting possibilities... I mean, listen, you're talking to a casting director, so, like, I could...
1: Make I, 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 I look forward to <laughs> hearing your casting in a second. Yeah, I think the only person who, like, had absolutely no belief it was going to go to Broadway with Sondheim himself. Everyone's like, I mean, it's a weak season. It's a Sondheim musical. And I feel like he's sort of going, it's, you know, it's fine. It's not as good as you guys probably think it is, but you'll, you'll see soon enough. And they sure did. But yeah, it seemed like it was a very pleasant experience. It kind of, um, yeah, it doesn't have much of an impact because of its sort of weird timeline. What's interesting to me is so it was supposed to come out in the 1954-55 season, which is the same season as The Pajama Game, uh, Peter Pan, Plain and Fancy, The Boyfriend, Fanny, uh, Silk Stockings too. And you, it's that, it's that time where musical comedy is kind of shifting a bit. It's becoming a little more sexual. It's becoming a little more um, highly energized. It's having a style about it. And I think this would be sort of the last season that Saturday night would have been acceptable. Uh, in terms of like its style and its sound. Yeah. If um, Had it come a year later, I think people have already been going like mm, too old fashioned. And I think that's why it was wise that Sondheim sort of canceled it in 1960 because that season it would have come out with um, Camelot and Bye Bye Birdie, which like talk about like putting Saturday night across the street from Bye Bye Birdie audiences would be like, the fuck is this show? Let's go see Bye Bye Birdie. You yeah. Know?
0: I mean, Bye Bye Birdie was the first rock and roll musical. Like, that was a turning yeah. point in Broadway. So, to have this simple, sweet show would have been...
1: Yeah. Dated. That's sort of the thing, is, like, when the, uh, you start to see it in the 60s, where, like, Broadway takes its sweet time getting going to, like, catching up with the rest of the country in terms of music and pop culture. Um, Like, the Beatles come to the States, blow up everything, and Broadway then takes, like, Fifteen years to try to get back into like the zeitgeist of of music, yeah. and yeah, because like after Bye Bye Birdie, there's not really any other show for the majority of the '60s, really until Heron promises promises that like get back to that sort of rock pop sound. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and even Bye, Bye Bye Birdie, like everything. when you think about it now, like it's it's interesting for us to listen to Bye Bye Birdie now and go like this is a rock musical because it seems so musical theatery, but at the time like it had electric guitar in it it had much more uh boppery yeah. sounds to it
0: wasn't it the first show to put electric guitar in the pit
1: don't quote that. me on that because I don't know for sure but that sounds I right think
0: it was yeah yeah exactly I mean and you're right it was it was an experiment that that was successful but then not recreated yeah for, same, for a while
1: yeah well it's the same thing with West Side Story like you know this major breakthrough happens and then nobody follows up you know Right. These people come out on stage and they're like, look at what we just did. Who's excited to join us? And everyone's like, we are so proud of you, but we're not joining. And I, what I will say about Broadway now in terms of the majority of the writers is that it does feel like everyone has this um, energy of trying to create new things and try uh, different styles and subject matter and all that stuff, which I really appreciate because there was a time, even in the golden age where like writers were like, we just want to put up a good show, a well-structured show. I don't need to break boundaries. And you, and it took a while for more writers to like, try to outdo each other. Like we're going to be the first show to do this. And we're going to be the first show to do that.
0: Right. You also have more people writing for Broadway these days than, you know, in the golden age, it was kind of the same handful of composers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like amazing that. It, could you imagine a major composer having back-to-back shows in back-to-back seasons? Like it would never happen today. No,
1: shows aren't written as quickly now. They're not developed as quickly. Gypsy was written in like four months. Yeah, that's that is that doesn't happen anymore. No, I mean it's it's gotten too
0: expensive. It's too risky. Yeah. You have to. You got to know what you're bringing in is. Yeah. So, is, you know, but I, yeah, I I think that we are. And I'll and I will be very interested to see what the next 10 years on Broadway looks like because there is going to be a cultural shift and there's going to be some mm-hmm. seismic changes happening because of a a year off and B or a year and a half off. And and just with everything going on, it's gonna I think we're entering a very exciting and um uh creative time, kind of like we did when we kind of came out of the the devastation of the AIDS epidemic yeah, and losing all of those writers and what, you know, not to be corny, but like Phoenix rose from those ashes and what was created, you know, how we rallied. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, there's some cool stuff that's going to happen. Yeah,
1: I can't fucking wait because honestly, like the eighties, which granted, some of my favorite things came from that decade is generally looked at as sort of a wasteland of like Broadway creativity. Like not, it was, you know, it was not the plethora of, Uh, exciting shows that it was in the 60s and 70s and then eventually became in the 90s and early 2000s and hot take I was not super thrilled with sort of the last season of Broadway granted a lot of the most interesting stuff was about to come out and then the world shut down which pissed me off but yeah um, I was kind of a little disheartened with sort of where Broadway was at so when it comes back later this year I am truly, truly excited to see what happens because I think that all these shifts are for the better, at least for the Broadway community. So I'm very excited.
0: I also wonder if the whole, like, structure of the Broadway season is going to change because I think what we learned last year was, you know, all the shows kind of packed themselves into March and April to get in right under the wire for Tony season so that Mm -hmm. they're fresh and hot. And look what happened. 20, what, 20 shows didn't get to open? 15 shows didn't get to open? You know, Mm -hmm. like... And some really cool things. I mean, we got Girl from the North Country that just slipped in there, but, you know, no one got to see. Yeah. And then you have things like Six and Sing Street that were, like, going to be these really cool new things that
1: didn't get to open. Flying Over Sunset, too. Like, these musicals, I'm like, these are such fascinating ideas, and they seem like they might, you know, even if they don't totally work, they still are trying something, and there's going to be something to them. And that really excited me. So the fact that um I didn't get to see any of it, devastates me, but I look forward to eventually seeing it. Yes, exactly. So, wrapping things up with uh, Saturday Night, of which for however long we've recorded, I'm pretty sure about 40% of it has been about Saturday Night, which is <laughs> honestly fair. That's what it should be. Yeah. it's. I think that's all Sondheim would ever want an episode about Saturday Night to be dedicated to it. So, let's do our rapid fire questions, and then we're going to call this Goddamn Day. Oh, gosh. <clears throat> First question. The Sondheim rhyme. What is your favorite lyric in this show? Uh, Well, it has to be the end of so many people, which
0: is. um, And if they tell us it's a thing we'll outgrow, they're jealous as they can be that with so many people in the world, you love me. I mean, come
1: on. That is gorgeous. It's 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 gorgeous. And it's also like a sly fuck the haters line. You know, next up. God, that's good. Where does this show rank for you in the Sondheim canon?
0: Uh, I would say, honestly, solid, like middle, um, okay. you know, it's, I, I, there are shows that I know less and don't respond to as well. Um, and, and there's, and there's enough redeeming qualities that if there was a production happening in New York, I would go and I would be excited to go and see it. So All right. we'll, we'll put it, we'll put it right around, um. You know, if if Into the Woods and Company and Sweeney Todd are my top tier, then my second tier would be like this, Merrily, and um, what am I forgetting? A lot. Yeah.
1: <laughs> That's fine. Second tier is honestly higher than I expected. Uh, yeah. Good, Good on you, Saturday Night. You made Kevin second tier. I had a dream cast. Who would you cast in a production of Saturday Night?
0: I can't believe you're going to ask the casting director this question. My job is to make lists. Um, yeah. So, so it's have, apropos, fucker. Yeah. So I have a few. I have a, obviously a, l- one million ideas. Um, the 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 ones that excite me, I think a young, like a, 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 a well, first of all, I should say that I think what makes the show really work is to have a very, very young cast. And so I yes. think what really what you'd want to do is go in and find people fresh out of school that aren't necessarily names yet and established and use this show in a way to make them stars. But that right. being said, I think uh, a, a fresh out of school, Kara Lindsay and Kevin Massey would be mm. an adorable Helen and Jean combo. Um, I actually think they could also still this day do Celeste and Hank, which I, which I think would be fun. Um, I also think a, it would have been fun back in the day to see Kelly O'Hara do mm. Helen. Um, and I think Adam Kaplan, um, would be a very charming gene. Um, Oh, Adam. Oh, Adam. But what I think, and I had hinted at this is with the revisal, I am, would be fascinated to see somebody come in and move this show to, to, um, Harlem Mm. in the 1920s and do it with an all black cast. Mm. And I think infusing some of that, that. Style of music coming out of Harlem in the you know the the Jazz Age and the Harlem Renaissance could be exciting, and then you know I think you can do things like Christiani Pitts as Helen, and um, from the Mean Girls tour, Adante Carter as Jean. I think it would be hysterical to get like a you know Roman Banks and Demarius Copes and and um, you know those kind of young young guys as the mm-hmm. friends. Um, I think, you know, a a Britney Johnson or or even a Britney Coleman as one of the, you know, the Natasha Diaz roles. Like, Mm -hmm. so I think that would be very interesting to see if there's a way, you know, there's a lot of lyrics that would need to be tweaked because so much of it is about Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And I have not done my dramaturgical work. I don't know if doing, if historically having an all black cast set in Brooklyn in the twenties would make sense. But I think that, Harlem Renaissance excitement and this idea. I mean, especially when um, you know it 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 adds all these layers of like when Helen says to Jean, like in at one point in the show, in a very dark moment, um, she says they're talking about somebody and she says, "So he got rich." I think they're talking about somebody on Wall Street. She says, "So he got rich. So will many others, but you never will." I think to like have a young um, you know African American in the early twenties have somebody say that to him, like would be there's a weight to that yeah it it, it adds stakes and it adds a, i'm gonna show you so that's what that's the revisal i want to see
1: i like that it also by setting it in harlem during that period it it allows you to then restyle the music to give it some heat which it currently lacks exactly yes make it a lot more exciting yeah. uh yeah i like that a great deal that's that's good um next up <clears throat> Because Sondheim tends to always come back stripped down and, uh, you know, simplified off-Broadway or John Doyle or classic stage company, whatnot, this section is called It's the Little Things, a.k.a. There Won't Be Trumpets. How would you downsize Saturday Night? I mean, can it be even further downsized? The whole thing takes place on the porch. There are no other sets and there are four actors. So here's, yeah, well,
0: here's what I, here's actually going along with my Harlem um, setting. I think it'd be interesting to set the whole thing in a Harlem jazz club Mm -hmm. and, and you could even, you know, kind of play with the onstage backstage of it all. And, and, you know, or, or set it in, you know, the, the Plaza Hotel in a way where all the idea of the backstage all, all the idea of the front porch scenes and whatever happen backstage and it's just kind of one unit set that keeps rotating and we really get a sense of like the wealth that gene is seeking with the you know on stage aspects of it and the mm-hmm. audience out front and then these young kids in the backstage that are like you know working at the theater or maybe the entertainment and are desperately wanting to get out of there and, and build a better life for themselves
1: yeah. What I also like about your restyling of it is something that I've noticed as I'm uh, going through the Sontime milieu is that he really only has two shows where he specifically tries to include um, other ethnicities that aren't white, and that's West Side Story and Pacific Overtures. And part of that is because he's always been so adamant about like I don't know anything other than like what I grew up with. He's like I'm a white Jewish boy from the Upper West Side like who am I to write about the plight of the African American woman. You know like and right. which is fair um at the time with which he sort of was coming up in the ranks of musical theater that was he was sort of the only kind of person that was writing for theater so part of me is like you know you could have used your platform for those kind of stories a bit more. I mean It didn't stop Arthur Lawrence from writing those stories and maybe Hallelujah Baby's not the best show in the world, but you know, he gave it a good old college try. Uh, So, and on top of that, in like the shows of Sondheim's where he really kind of comes in his own, like Company, Follies, Night Music, those same year of the Tony Awards, you start to to see shows that are trying to do that with um, uh, non-white creators. So you have Me Nobody Knows, uh, Bubbling Brown Sugar, uh, Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope. These shows that like have like a have an impact at the time and then kind of get swept under the rug after the fact, while the Sondheim shows get to live on. So it it would be nice to sort of reclaim one of the Sondheim shows and have that sort of um, start to correct the imbalance with that catalog. Yeah. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. I mean, you get the sweeping under the rug because of the patrons of the theater and and sure. the regional theaters and who goes to that well, like.
1: It's, it's important to note that the stories in musical theater with Broadway shows anyway, that are in musicals that are about non-Caucasian characters, the ones that last are the ones that are written by white writers. So like dream girls, yeah. um, color purple, uh, those are shows, uh, the only one I can really think of before like 1990 or even 2000 is the whiz that has like a black creative team that is about, you know, yeah. black people, um, but, you know, on top of that, we don't really, you uh, know, uh, all shows that have Asian cast are written by white men up until that point. Pacific Absolutely. Goers, Earth, Flower Drum Song, um, Miss, Saigon. Miss Saigon, Hispanic characters. It's, you know, it's it's good that we are discussing it and that we are, you know, working towards that. We should have been working on it a long time ago, but we can only sort of work with what, we're, what we have, which is where we're at. So it's good yeah. that we are working towards it now. Um, but yeah. It, And I want more shows, not necessarily having to like repurpose old ones as sort of like a toss off. However, because it's Sondheim and because he's important, because everyone should have their shot at Sondheim. I like your concept for Saturday night. It also makes the show more interesting to me. And that is where I'm at because I'm a basic bitch and I need shows to be interesting.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's also about, you know, you want to move forward and and progress the art form and progress the industry and, and that is giving you know a voice to uh, writers of color, writing for actors of color, writing for characters of color. Mm-hmm. but you know you also um, we, we want to not forget the history we have come from and and how do you how do you pay tribute to what's come before us while also progressing forward and and getting to a place where you can look back on some shows that are problematic and say, like, we can close the chap, we can close the book on that, and that's yeah. never going to get fixed. And so it's it's it is what it is, and we just don't need to deal with it.
1: Well, it, well, it comes from moving forward, right? Because yeah. uh, you know, people, and this is not anything new, and it's not just theater; it's everywhere. People harp on the past because it's what they know, it's what they remember, it's what they were able to survive. And I talked about this on a podcast that uh, that I guested on talking about Fiddler, about like why people in Fiddler are so into tradition, which is, you know, A, adding a sense of structure to life and things that they can control, but also this idea of, you know, our traditions have gotten us this far, we've survived with our traditions, like who's to say, if we were to get rid of them, what would happen next? And so that's where a lot of people get iffy about progress because they're not sure what it might, uh, lead to however it's necessary to survive Uh, so what I'm trying to say to your question there Kevin this is all coming around I swear to god I have a point Yeah, is that the best way to look back on the past and sort of be able to close the chapter on some things that are maybe problematic is to then kind of counteract with like creating something now that does what that show did at the time you know exactly and, and having our own version of it that's less problematic, that's something that we can all uh, enjoy together now. So we can eventually come to a point where we, where we look at a show like um, Flower Drum Song and we can say this moment in history that's important that we don't ever need to do again because we've been able to do better since.
0: Yes, exactly. And a um, lot of times those people with that that's are afraid of change and, of, and saying the tradition and all of that mm-hmm. are, are people who... Up to that point, have benefited from the way things are, and what Absolutely. we've learned is there's a whole sector of of people that have not benefited from the way that things have been, and so we must let go of traditions in order to, you know, encompass mm-hmm. and welcome in, and it goes, you know, it goes all the way to the top and all the way in this industry as well. How do we, mm-hmm. you know, welcome in, truly make? people who have felt um, excluded for years or mm-hmm. or have felt othered feel like they belong as much as those of us that have felt like, you know, yes. they belong.
1: And on top of that, because you brought it up a second ago, and I want to emphasize this, that doesn't mean sanitizing the past to make it more palatable for the present. We have to know where we were to know where we're going. Uh, and I don't think anyone benefits from, uh, you know, making troubled history squeaky clean for consumption You oh god it, yeah which was a problem for a while when people were doing updated versions of older shows or doing shows that took place in an older period and I'm like you're not helping anybody by trying to make this more pc or more woke you know if something said in the 1920s you know it's I, you gotta be honest with what's going on here um and it'll make us uh appreciate how far we've come and how much further we have to go
0: right i mean i'm jewish and i would be horribly offended if i came to see a production of cabaret
1: and the nazi aspect was sanitized that's yeah If they were like if like you know what we understand now after that number you just sang handshake yeah i mean that
0: show and i that's something that that's you know i bring that up because i that's an experience that i can speak of mm-hmm. as you know like i mean i can speak of being jewish like and so like that's the history around cabaret. The Nazis huh. were there and that's what it's about. So why are we going to shy away from that? Like you you have to, you know, and if we get to a place where um, that no longer becomes acceptable to see on stage, then, then we have to retool that and rethink that. But you can't just suddenly erase Nazism from Sound of Music or cabaret.
1: Just like you can't erase that a lot of Saturday night doesn't work. So it's our job <laughs> to fix it. Yes.
0: So we're going to bring in, I want to bring in all black creatives and we'll do a Harlem version and see if it works. We'll workshop it. It may not work. It may,
1: you know. It may not work, but we're going to set it in a Harlem nightclub. I love all of that. Um, Kevin, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. This,
0: we, 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 it was like we veered and then we got back Saturday night. and We veered and we got back to Saturday night.
1: I mean, I'll be interested to see what I cut out Uh, these are these are longer episodes by nature just so everybody knows uh, depending however long this episode ends up being in its final form know that it was over two hours so if you have issues with the length just know it used to be a lot longer but (laughs) I will definitely keep a lot of our tangents because I like them Uh, Kevin where can people find you on the social media if they if you want them to find you I am at Kev Metz
0: M-E-T-Z on Twitter and Instagram and I guess TikTok, but I'm not not Uh,
1: This will be airing, I believe in May, end of May, or maybe even beginning of June. Will MT Trivia still be happening by then, do you think?
0: Uh, Yes, our plan right now is to go through the end of May and then take a summer hiatus. Okay. Um, But you can catch MT Trivia if it's still happening uh, in May. Wow, what a beautiful May day this is, Matt. Um, (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) It's gorgeous out. Um, MT Trivia is on Broadway Talk Live. network, which is broadwaytalklive.com. You can find us on YouTube or Facebook. And um, yeah, we're every
1: Monday night at nine o'clock Eastern. Love it so much. And you can find me on Instagram at Matt Koplik, usual spelling. Uh, If you like the podcast, guys, uh, give it a nice five-star rating. Uh, you You could write a little review if you like. You don't have to saying how much you enjoy it, how much you hate my voice, how much you love my voice, but you hate the podcast. Anything you so damn well please. The algorithm is real. And, you know, we are all but but slaves to it. You know what I mean? I'm trying to think of who we should close out as our diva this evening for Saturday night. You know, because we've spoken about her so highly, I think we have to do Miss Lauren Ward. Lauren Ward! Yeah. Wh- whether we do Violet or Matilda is still up for debate. But oh, you, be- you gotta do Violet. I don't know. I, maybe yeah, I want to close out on a- <laughs> Maybe I want to close out on a bummer with like My House. This is my house. My
0: house. Beautiful song.
1: Oh, I love that song. That song devastates me, but I don't know if it's a song you close out on. I don't know. We'll see. TV (laughs) day. We'll find out in May now, won't we? All right. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Have a great week. Catch us next week when we talk about uh, another Sondheim musical that finally makes it to Broadway. One Assassin's. Catch you later, girls. Bye. I am on my